pray. Father, we pause in our worship hour today and, and consider the awesome privilege it is to approach you in your word and how it needs to be handled with love and care. It needs to be handled as it is the word of God, the truth that uh, sets us free, the truth that provides uh, insight in life. It helps us to discern right and wrong and good and evil. It grants us access to um, the promises that have been precious to generations before and uh, will grant unto us um, the needs of the day, uh, that we need not worry. Your presence is sought, but it is found, and you speak uh, even in the still small voice through uh, the men and women of Scripture uh, by to your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your spirit does illuminate your word and bring us uh, to a place where we are able to feed upon it and uh, that spirit is able to make application in the day-to-day lives. Um, and we pray that what we provide here, Father, uh, would be uh, to your glory. Uh, thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 3 beginning in verse 13, which is where we read last week, and then we'll go through chapter 4, verse 3. James 3 and 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy, and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now, we're preaching today on James 4, but I wanted to go back to this particular section here in James 3. Um, We saw last week two kinds of wisdom that Uh, the author presented to us, a natural or a worldly wisdom, and then the godly or heavenly wisdom that was provided here. We spent time looking at the characteristics, really, of natural wisdom, and then the outcome. When that type of wisdom is applied, we saw the outcome of the things that were there, and it wasn't a pretty picture. Uh, Jealousies and conflicts and confusion I gave you a definition. Remember, wisdom is the practical application of acquired knowledge, applying the things that we learn. So natural wisdom or worldly wisdom says, I am doing in a process that the world gives me in that pattern. We concluded with the understanding that godly wisdom was a result of your relationship with Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit was the one who provides such. And uh, in verse 17, he 
gave you some clarity in this beautiful picture of what heavenly wisdom applied is. Wisdom from above, in other words, from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated. Uh, you'd have to look up that word because I did. You know, <laughs> It means not stubborn, not obstinate, you know, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And I think if you look at Galatians 6 at the fruit of the Spirit, you'll see a real correlation there. In other words, when I use godly wisdom, there's a product that comes out. Unlike what worldly wisdom produces here, um, but it was beautifully stated. Now, James does not say to himself, ah, new topic, mm, new paragraph, because he's continuing on in the same vein. Even though we have a chapter and verse, James didn't write like that. And so he brings our reader's attention again to the consequences of worldly wisdom. It's apparently prevalent to the people he was writing with. It's prevalent everywhere, actually. So, now, James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and ye have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. I don't know if you caught this. When he ends chapter 3, he's talking about sown in peace, them that make peace, here's peace, and then he follows immediately in verse 1 with war. And I'm almost thinking if he had a quill that he's writing this, this first verse here in, in chapter 4, he's pressing down hard, you know? He's, he's pushing, or he, he finds a quill that's wide, you know, a, a bold, bold. He's got his quills up there, and he says, here's fine point, and here's medium point, here's bold point. And he gets it out there, and he puts it down for this thicker quill. From whence comes wars and fightings among you? The Spirit of God produces peace, produces all of these marvelous, beautiful things, and then all of a sudden he comes back and he says, What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? What is this? You know, why are these things taking place? The wording that he uses here is very graphic. Uh, around this period of time, before the letter of James and afterwards, the Jews were not very happy with the Romans. There were some zealots in there that were seeking to overthrow Rome. Um, and so there were a number of battles that took place and a lot of, you know, spy things going on and knives and, you know, assassinations and stuff. And then there were other groups of Jews in other parts of the empire, um, in Syria and in Egypt. And they were looking at even other Jews and saying, you know, you guys aren't measuring up. And so there were assassinations there and there were killings and there were fightings and all this other kind of stuff. So in the context, the period of time, there was fightings and wars. There was bloodshed. It was terrible. 
Now, we're not saying here that uh, James is suggesting that there was bloodshed in the church, but there was obvious discord. The same language is used to fighting wars type of thing, to the attitude in wars as there was within the church or as there was within the people that he's writing. It didn't come about because of the Romans, and it didn't come about because of some cult, but they were within themselves as individuals. He says, come they not hence? He's asking, where's fighting begin? Where's the war start? Well, he actually knows. And he says, come they not hence? Even your lust, that war within your members? Members is a word that you use, Paul uses for the body. You know, you have a member as your ear or your eye or your arm or your leg. Those are all members. And I guess you could take that over into the bigger picture and saying members as far as, as members of within the congregation. But I think he's really pointing to the internal aspect of it. Their internal warring within their hearts. They wanted to selfishly satisfy themselves, their carnal cravings. They wanted themselves to be of all. I think pastors all over the world sit at times and counsel couples. After years of struggle, they come in and says, Pastor, he says, we need help. And um, they'll hear, and he says, well, Mr. So-and-so, what is it? Well, she just keeps on nagging. And, well, he doesn't do this. And he just gives da 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 back and forth and back and forth. And, and what began as an internal issue all of a sudden has transformed to a couple, which affects not only the couple, which affects the family, and it continues. And this is what James is writing. He says what is evident is a broader picture, but what's obvious is that it didn't begin with the broad picture. It begins within the heart of the individual. It begins with the lust to have it my way. Mark it down that selfishness will always destroy peace. Think how the principle affects life. You can go to every war, every dictator, every general who decides he's going to do it my way, and it's about his own selfishness. Every plant overtaking, every company that decides they're going to do the, the bank failures of, out in California, do you get that? You know, the, the tech banks, you know. And they just said the Friday or so before, the CEOs and all that with, sold a whole bunch of stock. They knew what was going on. It was all part of me. And so what begins within the heart of the individual all of a sudden is translated to something bigger and bigger and bigger. And he says, all of a sudden it affects a greater picture than everybody else has thought about. Ralph C. Horner was a Methodist minister from Canada in the late 1800s. He's a Pentecostal, a rather excitable man, holiness movement, known for his very bold and emotional sermons. Well, the articles in the newspaper say that on one evening, Reverend Horner was enthusiastically preaching about a revival in his service, and his hand became, or his arm became, entangled with his tie. <laughs> well... He decided that this was the devil trying to bind him in his preaching. So he tore off the tie and he threw it on the ground and he stomped on it and he blamed it as the devil's use. And he planned for now on, 
no ties are going to be worn in church. Well, sad to say that this came into a quarrel within the congregation to those who felt that he was a little off kilter. And if you look up in Canada today, there is still a tieless sect called the Horninites. It's all you men without ties. You belong to the Horninites. Yeah, it seems ridiculous. It seems ridiculous, you know. The smallest of things have, have begun within the heart of a man, and it's translated to something bigger because it affects so many more. I've seen it within the color of a carpet. Church needed new carpeting, and part of the group wanted red, and part of the group wanted blue. And it divided the congregation terribly, split them up. Another church I read of, the, class, the, the over, overwhelmingly uh, positive attitude from the pastor and, and others in leadership was that the staff needed to be clean-shaven. No beards, no mustaches. Um, I knew of a church not too far from here that the pastor made sure that all of the deacons of the church that the hair wasn't touching the collars, you know, and sideburns weren't to be so long, and, and that they were all to wear a certain type of sport coat in order to be complimentary. I think we've all tasted some of those at one time or another in our lives. All of a sudden, friends no longer become friends. People that we used to sit with and talk with and, and, and have fellowship, all of a sudden it becomes an awkward moment when we see them out in public. What do you say? Hi. How do you deal with it? And I think the greater question is, how does the world view us? As we perceive ourselves or want to present ourselves as the body of Christ, how do they see us? Way back in the 18th century, there was a Dutch philosopher, Jewish, by the name of Baruch Spinoza. And Spinoza's had a lot of writings that have been seen through Uh, various universities, but he said this, I've often wondered that persons who make boasts of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily toward one another such a bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. As a Jewish philosopher, he says, Christians would prefer to have their fighting become the testimony that they live by rather than the pronouncements that Scripture says these are the things believers are to be holding to. And obviously, 18th century, you know, uh, it occurred back then and it's occurred at all times. But I want us to notice here in our text that James doesn't ask whether there were fightings and quarrels amongst us. You know, he says, he asks is kind of in a question, but he knows the answer. And the truth is, he's assuming that it happens. What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? In the irony, he knows the reasons. But as we've seen in the past, he uses questions to kind of stir up the imagination, to get people to think as to what's taking place. I seriously believe that there are fights and quarrels in the church that are legitimate and justified. There are times that indeed we 
have to take biblical doctrines and we draw a line in the sand and we said no further. This is what we hold to. These are the things that we believe and, and this is what we will not go any further. Martin Luther says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and I will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do none other. God help me. And others held to those principles. There's a, there's a, there's a, a line that has to be drawn and there's, there's tremendous grace given on both sides. But when it comes to error, there's that area. However, I think it's also clear that peace at any price is not a biblical concept. There are some individuals and churches who have taken the fundamentals of the faith and swept them under the carpet for the sake of peace. I don't want to offend anybody. Let's just keep it. Let's just let them have their part and let them have their part and, and let just everybody just for the sake of peace. So nobody's offended. We want to be as inclusive as possible. We don't have to go very far about that today, do we? We see the byproducts of what's taken place within the church. It's become nothing more than a social club. James, however, is clearly concerned with the kind of arguments and conflicts that cannot be justified. Not talking about doctrines of, of uh, the just uh, are saved by grace through faith alone, not about the Trinity, Jesus Christ, not about his deity. The fact that he's talking about is arguments, strife, conflicts that are sourced in selfish ambition. Yes, that happens within the church. Yes, that happens within the life of every believer. Pastor and author Larry Osborne writes this. The fiercest battles in our churches are seldom fought over theology. And I think of shake it down, that's really what it is. More often they are fought over change. Sometimes even the slightest change. They are fought over personalities over music preferences, over leadership style, over Robert's rules of order, over injured feelings. Why? James offers an interesting insight here in the first verse. It is because believers are often at war with one another because believers are at war within themselves. They're at war within themselves. The peace relationship that we are to have with the Lord Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit gives us is to rule and reign. And it goes back to the principles of wisdom. How I make my choice and how I make my decision, is it based upon this horizontal pattern that the world has given me? Why, everybody thinks this way. Everybody does it this way. That's the universal plan. Or is it based upon the word of God? Do I make a choice, a decision, a conclusion based upon how God says it, what God has presented to me? We often base our decisions based upon pleasing me, what makes sense to me, what makes it right for me, because we want to please ourselves, even if it hurts others, even if it hurts others. Verse 2, you lust. You have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight 
and war. Yet ye have not because ye ask not. That picture that he presents here, and we just take the first, you know, you lust, you desire, you have. It's in a tense and a voice in the Greek that is, is it's a personal choice. In other words, he's saying nobody is forcing you to make this choice. You're not being tricked. Oh, the devil made me do this. No, it's a choice that within my heart I choose to lust. In other words, I have a sincere, earnest desire to have something, whatever it is. You desire, you covet, all forced together. This fallen flesh has urged them to lust. And that was not uncommon. Um, you look in Acts chapter 6 and you go back to the beginning church. And here's a, here's a group of, 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 of widows. And there were the Jewish widows and there were the non-Jewish widows, the Greek widows. And all of a sudden they were seeing, ah, there's some favoritism here. Certain groups were receiving some and certain groups were not. And certain jealousies are incurred within, and this obviously was the production or what God used to bring about the, the, the beginning of deacons and so forth with service, but it was found within those earliest of days. Paul writes of the church in Galatia, and he warns them. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Galatian church goes, whew, all types of problems. But the basic principle, he says, the fighting within the body there at, at Galatia, he says, you know what? You're going to be consuming each other. You know, the, the lizard going around or the dog chasing his tail. You know, he keeps biting away. You know, it, it just won't happen. Corinthian church was not without its problems. They had cliques. Uh, I am Paul. I am follow of Peter. Uh, I'm a follow of uh, Apollos. You know, and they had those little groups. Oh, you're, he's the best, he's the best, he's the best. And, and Paul says, whoa, wait a minute. He says, what about Christ? You know, They had issues that they were conflicting so much within themselves that they even took it to the civil court. And boy, Paul laid into him. And he says, you don't take the church business to a public forum or the court in dealing with that. They had, they had attitudes that were simply born within themselves. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. The last reason for these destructive desires for Christians is that, first of all, they don't ask God at all. We call it prayerlessness. We simply ignore that which has been provided for us. And then the second part of it is, is that we ask with wrong motives. I hold to the fact that one of the worldly wisdom's greatest allies is prayerlessness. When it comes to making choices of the day, we can fall into the pattern, I've always done it this way. I've always made these choices, these directions. I remember uh, Gary and Pat Johnson, they, when we first uh, moved in the seminary and we lived up together in the uh, office there in Philly, and every time I'd go out with Gary, whether it's to get some supplies or to do whatever, he says, let's pray. Before he started the car, before he did anything else. And to that point, I thought, why do that? You know, 
why, why even engage in that, you know? And, and all of a sudden, it took me to the place where I'm saying, well, I've driven before. I've driven for many years. I've never had an accident. And, well, except for that one. But um, all these other things, and I don't need to do it, you know? Or what about the food on my table? Or what about the place that I live? Or what about the clothes that I wear? About it? Who's provided all these things? Do I ever stop and acknowledge him in the smallest of events? And it doesn't mean that we walk around talking, you know, like some, you know, Holy Joe and, and, and praying all the time. But I have to stop and pause and acknowledge the God who is there, who is my Savior and who is my provider. I think the greatest example of submissiveness to the Father is the Lord Jesus Christ. The surest example of one who who needed to, but he was God, but that's not, he was holy man. And he needed to have that conversation, that release, that direction. You know. Father, if it's your will, you know, let me do this. I'm about to face these, and we don't know a lot of the prayers that Jesus presented, but the situations that he entered into on a regular basis. How could he have done that? How could he have seen all of the rejections and the pain and the suffering other than he had committed it to his father, and he was assured by his father of his presence, even at the point of his greatest rejections that, you know, Lord, you've, you've left me. He recognized that. So if Jesus needed such a prayer life in order to accomplish his ministry, the purpose in life, what does that say for us? How does that speak to us? We face the struggles of worldly wisdom, and the needs that we have is prayer. Spurgeon says, If you may have anything by asking, and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is, and I beseech you to abound in it. I don't have it because I haven't asked. But what I have available to me is available from the hand of God. We're not talking about, you know, the stupid things of, of life. You know, Lord, I need a Cadillac. You know, Lord, I need a, you know, this, I need a that, you know. Because I know God's will after I've gone through his word. Spurgeon says, do you know, brothers, what great things are to be had for the asking? Have you ever thought of it? Does it not stimulate you to prayer fervently? All heaven lies at the gasp of the asking man. All promises of God are rich and inexhaustible, and their fulfillment is to be had by prayer. How many offerings are available in his word that are given as steps of guidance? And I've said many times, you know, the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path And yet we prefer to walk around stumbling in the dark when it comes to making decisions in life. How do I go? What do I do? Oh, and I'll call up so-and-so, and and I'll speak to so-and-so, and and I'll speak to so-and-so. Have you talked to the Lord? Well, not really. It's not hard to understand. We need prayer. Because I think we are paupers to prayer. Lastly, James writes, prayerlessness is tied 
with praying for the wrong motives. Ye ask, ye receive not, because ye ask amiss, that it may be consumed upon your lust. In essence, is what he is saying is that God is not in the business of fitting prayers to our agenda. We have to come as we come to him and ask for his request. Jesus' famous words, not I will, but thy will be done. And if we say that, if we pray with that principle, what happens when it doesn't come about? Or do we just tack it on? Thy will be done, Lord, you know. And also, what happened? How come he didn't answer? How come I'm still sick? How come that paycheck hasn't grown? How come this and this and this? But I said, thy will be done. Instead, it's really more, my desires be done. And when we, when we become anxious about this relationship, I rely on worldly wisdom and saying, it's all about me, it's all about selfishness and jealousies, and that goes back into the end of chapter 3. You know, it's all about me. And Lord, you're there just to answer those things according to my plan in life. Very sad. Thy will be done. I found an illustration that I want to close with today. October 31st of 1999. Take you back to that one. Plane took off from JFK International Airport in New York on the right to route to Cairo, Egypt. The final report from the National Transportation Safety Board concluded that a short time after takeoff, the relief first officer waited for the pilot to leave the cockpit and then disengaged the autopilot. He proceeded to move the throttle levers from their cruise power to idle, and he cut the engines. Seconds later, the airplane began to pitch and nose down and to descend into a free fall. In the final moments before impact, the horrified pilot rushed back into the seat and he battled the co-pilot for control of the plane. The pilot pulled back on the controls, desperate to bring the nose upward for the plunging Boeing 767, while the suicidal first officer pushed the controls away forward to keep the plane in its lethal dive. The result was tragic. The crash of Egypt Air Flight 990 into the Atlantic Ocean, south of Nantucket, Massachusetts. 217 were killed. The battle in the airplane is the battle that's going on in your heart and in your mind right now. So many times... We have made peace with it. We think we're content with it, where we are. We spiritually, in reality, it's here. We're at war, though, and we have an enemy inside the gates, and we must deal with that inside. writer said the battle in that airline's cockpit is a picture of the inner life of the Christian. Each day we choose either to hijack control of our lives, plunging ourselves into sin, or to remain locked into God's direct will. That's why we all need to be in the Word every day so that we will go back locked into the will of God, which is the final, 
finally to be found in his word. If you take it that day and take the time to stack up before you enter into the world, don't hesitate about what he will provide for you. It's the battle. When it comes to making choices in life, James says, you people ought to know better. You have entered into this conflict, and, and, this, and the book continues to get you know, even a lot of stuff revealing what they were engaged in. But he's basically saying you've made worldly choices because you haven't allowed what God has provided to fill your heart. And it ends up, the, the, the last one, which I think is most profound, prayerlessness, if I'm not tuning into the word of God for everything else, why am I going to pray? I see no reason for it. You know, spiritual conflicts. The end result, it begins with the person and the individual. And it moves out and it moves out and it moves out and it moves out. Sad to say, it becomes part of the testimony of the church. It becomes part of the testimony of Christianity uh, around the world. Uh, yes, there are times when uh, we see things clearly and we battle for it. But there are other times it begins really within ourselves. And so the challenge, I think, today for all of us, and uh, I have to speak to myself really in this, when it comes time to making choices, I have to allow God to be first. I have to uh, recognize what's going on inside of Keith. I have to recognize this conflicts that are going on in, in, in between my ears, in, in between my, my heart, in my heart, and recognize that he has to be in control and that I have to rely upon him and what he said for all choices. Let's pray. So, Father, you see us as we are. And by our own confession, we are not what we would want to be. We recognize, Father, that we have decided in many parts of our life um, to make choices based upon the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the flesh, the old natural way from our father Adam. And yet, as your spirit works in us, we're enabled to see that the new man in Christ, uh, speaking loudly through the word and by the spirit, brings us back online and gives us the ability to not only confess that we've been wrong and that we've done wrong, but that there's a restoration of our hearts with you. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your long suffering. Thank you for allowing us, even though we act uh, terribly as testimonies, to act terribly at times as ambassadors, uh, poorly as spokespeople for uh, the church of Jesus Christ, that you still use us and that you're still pleased to provide for us uh, truth and reality. Uh, equip us, Father, for the battle that occurs first within each of our hearts and the battle that is extended into our families and on into the church itself. Uh, may, Father, we be a shining testimony for your name. In his name we pray. Amen.